You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, a man, a plan, a canal, Mr. Jeff McLarge. That's me. The McLargest yeah, or the hugest. My palindrome all fell apart at the end. <laughs> What's going on? How are you? Uh, you know, I'm all right. I've, I've had a difficult week, and I'm reflecting on how good it is that we have the opportunity to record this show every Thursday. Uh-huh. Because coming at the oh, end of... Oh, oh, there's behind the curtain. Right? There's the, there's the curtain getting pulled back, guys. Right, right. Yeah, you can see a little bit. Thursdays. We do record on Thursdays. Usually by this time of the week, I'm reaching the really frustrating part of the week. It's I'm not quite to Friday yet. I haven't solved all the problems that have to be solved, like at work, or it's like almost grocery day. Is all these things going on. And for the couple of hours, three hours or so, that it takes us to record this program, uh, yep. all of that stuff goes away. This is like therapy. It's like getting a giant mental cleanser so that when I'm done, when we're done, mm-hmm. and I go off to eat with my kids or I go off to do some other project, I, it's like I'm totally refreshed. That was basically the reason why I had started doing this podcast Right. I think I started. I think I started this in 2019. It was like the summer of 2019 with the you know my original co-host mm-hmm. uh, Jezebel. We were both you know fancied ourselves as pretty funny people. Right. We're also people that you know can get overworked or can get overwhelmed with things like that. And the project was to basically make each other laugh. Yes. You know, constantly week after week. You know, unfortunately, because of scheduling problems and all that, uh, I, I couldn't continue to work with Jezebel anymore. But happy and welcomed accident because I've been friends with you for you know thirty some odd years, right? And you know, it's very easy working with you. Very easy having a conversation. Matter of fact, a little too easy sometimes because. We'll get off on these tangents while we're putting the show together. It's like, all right, all right, stop it. Shut up, shut up. Save it for the show. Save it for the show. <laughs> we do do that. Even when we're not getting ready to record for the show, like uh, sometimes when you're here visiting over the weekend. Right. If you stay on the couch and we're doing our usual, let's see if we can murder each other with the amount of coffee we drink. <laughs> to one, While we talk at one another, like there's inevitably going to be one of us going, no, no, wait, wait, we got to write that down. Yeah, so uh, uh, that's something I did notice when you came down to hang out when we went out to pizza. Mm-hmm. I did notice that a lot of times we're like looking for the joke right. that we're gonna save for the show. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> it's, like, it's it's almost hard to get out of podcast mode sometimes. Sometimes but, it is. Um, but that's not always a bad thing because, like I said, I started this podcast up as just a way to make myself laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, here I am, I think four, almost four years later. Here we are three years later. Right. So, um, yeah, 
uh, outside of <laughs> scrambling sometimes to find uh, a topic to talk about, uh, no, I always have a great time doing this show. It, it is definitely a, a ton of fun, and it makes me feel so much happier. I go into Friday with a bigger smile on my face than I do on the weeks that we skip. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. That's that's what I wanted to talk about today. I was reflecting on that this week because it's been such a difficult week. I like, uh, you don't get to see this because you don't take care of the social media side right. of it. But I like on Mondays, I will get occasional messages from different listeners just chiming in on different topics and or corrections. Mm. All right. So before we get into the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> Whoa. All right. What do you got for me? Okay. One of my favorite fast foods, actually probably my favorite fast food, is Taco Bell. Now, McDonald's was named after the McDonald's brothers. Right. Burger King named themselves because they are the kings of burgers. And Wendy's named his place after his daughter, whose name was not Wendy. Right. But why is Taco Bell named Taco Bell? I mean, yeah, there's tacos, but why is it Taco Bell? Oh, it's an easy one. I'll get that at the end of the show. No problem. Okay. Sure you will. All right. But this is going to be the week beginning April the 3rd. And because this trivia question was so easy for you, Mr. I Know Everything... Mr. McLodge Huge, right. I'll let you go first. All right, April 3rd, 1968. The birth of a film franchise. Planet of the Apes is released in the United States and eventually spawns four sequels to the originals and then a remake and then another remake with sequels after that. But the first film... Sequels and prequels, yeah. Sequels and prequels. The first film, based on the French science fiction novel written by a guy named Pierre Boulet, becomes a sensation. In fact, it spawned a television show that I remember being on as well in the 1970s. Yeah. And it was a huge deal for science fiction pre-Star Wars. I mean, we were kids whenever like the Planet of the Apes phenomenon was a thing. Yes. It was as I recall something that got milked to the fact where uh, you know, the, as we talked about with Nitro last week, the law of diminishing returns. <laughs> uh, I remember the television show Planet of the Apes just being like laughed at because it was so bad it was definitely done as compared to the movies yeah it was definitely done on the cheap like any other franchise with sequels the amount of money that they spend on the second film is a lot less than they spent on the first and then the third is less than the second the fourth is less than the third the fifth is less than the fourth george lucas yeah yeah and then ultimately you're like you're on tv and roddy mcdowell is the only character that's reprised his role from the films and he's like he does literally any job that you hire him for Yep. And then in 2001, there was a remake by Tim Burton, which I saw in the cinema with, uh, it wasn't one of the Wahlbergs. It was uh, Ben Affleck's friend there. What's his face? Dan. I don't know. Dawn. I just remember Estella Warren was in it because I like her. She's very pretty. Well, Michael Clark Duncan was in it. I had a good cast. Who was the main character, He's not though? as pretty as Estelle Warren. <laughs> but it didn't have the legs to warrant other films. And like most Tim Burton films, he's like a in one and then out again. He doesn't make franchise films, but... I haven't seen the ones that started again in 2011, but I have seen all of the originals starting in 68, 70, 71, 72, and 73. I watched the one with James Franco. Mm -hmm. I think that was Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I think that yes. was like the uh, the prequel one. Right. It was surprisingly good. Yeah. You know, like like with as far as like remakes and reboots and all that, I know you uh, you frown upon such matters, but that one there with James Franco that was like surprisingly good. And Planet of the Apes is a franchise that I never really watched. Mm -hmm. And then 
I ended up watching the original. Uh, time is a blur these days, but probably about ten years ago, I watched the original, and I just remembered Mad Magazine making fun of Planet <laughs> of the Apes because the television show was so bad. Yeah, that I thought that the movies were all terrible. I was like, this isn't terrible. This is actually really, really good. Right. So yeah, that original one is really good it's, it's interesting to go back and watch it now because it's pre-seismic event it's pre-star wars so it's a yes. lot more thinky is that a phrase than cerebral than, uh, cerebral, cerebral yeah cerebral than this than the science fiction that would come after that's not a good thing or a bad thing i'm just it's just different it's paced differently and yeah it makes for a different viewing experience for a science fiction film where you know since we were kids it's pretty much been like action adventure and that film yeah. really isn't. It's a lot more conversation and with a few small action set pieces, but most of it is conversation. Really interesting. All right. Moving on to the 4th. April the 4th, 1581, Jeff. Oh. So going back a couple of years, Francis Drake is knighted by Queen Elizabeth I for completing the circumnavigation of the globe. Oh, he went all the way around, huh? That's worth yeah, a knighthood. Around. If you... That's worth <laughs> around. Really? Are you trying uh, to get at something? I think you might be yes, trying. Yes, I am. To... I think you might be trying to get at something that's getting your goat or working yes. you in some way. Please share. So, yes, there's a number of uh, podcasts that I listen to. There's a couple of them out of Austin, Texas, and they're call-in shows. And obviously, I don't listen to them live, but I listen to the the podcast version of them. And one of them is called Truth Wanted. Right. And this particular episode, all of their callers were flat earthers, Jeff. Oh, geez. Yeah. Have you ever met a flat earther? Have you ever talked to one? I have not. Have you ever seen one out in the wild I've, is what I'm getting I've, at? I've, never, I've only seen videos of them and or read accounts of people interacting with them or read some of their more unorthodox approaches to science and physics. Yeah. I met one. I met one when I was driving to Florida. I had stopped off in Virginia, mm -hmm. and the guy behind the counter volunteered this information to me. He was like, yeah, he goes, I'm, I'm really sad to think that the uh, the world is flat. And I was like pointing out the window. I was like, the moon is right there. <laughs> well, isn't it just like a flat picture of the moon, right? Isn't that the point? It's not really round. I don't remember. You always see the same side but of the moon, right? It's really like frustrating to sit there and listen to the the people argue mm. there's like one youtube channel that i'll watch is like a british guy that will take apart the arguments and show why they're horrible yes but this call-in show every time you thought you had the guy pinned you know with really common sense logic he had a counter argument for it and even though a lot of his counter arguments were fallacious at best it's frustrating that he cannot be convinced right it's right like, what is wrong with you <laughs> <laughs> i like the recent sort of videos of people who do things like go up in planes <laughs> they're like yeah. oh oh all right well i guess it is round uh, hmm. <laughs> and they come back down uh, but i mean some of the ways that they approach the science is interesting only in that they're thinking about how they're going to devise an experiment that proves what they already think is the conclusion, and it it never seems to work out that way. If you take a like a laser transit for civil engineering and you put a couple of markers up, you're going to see where it, the further away from the laser transit you get, the higher the marker is going to go because you're going around the curvature of the Earth. Right. You know. 
it's like eight inches a mile or something yeah, like that. Yeah, something like that. Just make them watch Independence Day, right? It's the line of sight for the satellites is how the aliens are able to coordinate their attack. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 no. They have a counter argument for that one, too. Do they really? <laughs> the the oh, yeah. ID4 argument doesn't win them over? I'm surprised. Oh, no, no. Not, not Independence Day, but no, for satellites in oh, general. Oh, oh, oh. Satellites aren't real, Jeff. Satellites aren't real. So I'm sure Francis Drake, were he to crawl out of the tomb 300 plus years ago and uh, yep. shamble his way towards us, he would be going flat. It's not not flat. I went around, and that would be the end of the story. All right, moving on to the fifth, April fifth, eighteen ninety-two. The very first newspaper ad for an ice cream sundae appeared in the Ithaca, New York Daily Journal. So, eighteen ninety-two. That's way back. Yeah, it is. This is at the height of the sort of drugstore, the apothecary, soda fountain boom. Yep. This is when they are the most popular gathering places in the United States. It's very puritanical still in the States at this time. Like Not like it isn't now. Mm-hmm. Where people would get together and drink ice cream and Dr. Pepper and other sort of sweet sundry treats in whatever the yep. local sort of... That was generally the local gathering place, right? So the first newspaper ad features it. And it is a pharmacy co-owned by a guy named Chester Platt. And it was offering a cherry sundae, which is, I guess, vanilla ice cream with cherry and cherry syrup on top of it which had never been advertised before. Now, my favorite thing about this show is learning new things and getting to ask questions that I always wondered about but never wondered out loud. Mm-hmm. So here's the answer, guys. Why is it called a Sunday, S-U-N-D-A-E, and not a Sunday like S-U-N-D-A-Y? And there's actually no concrete answer for it. There's a couple of different theories. The one that seems to have the most legs is back in those days, and realistically only up until like the 90s in Massachusetts, they used to have things called blue laws. And there was just certain things you couldn't do on Sundays, the day of the week. Right. You do anything you want to an ice cream Sunday, I guess. Uh, But there was certain, (laughs) certain things that you just could not, it was illegal to do on Sundays. Yes. Like, I remember when I was a real little kid, stores weren't open on Sundays. Yeah, I remember that, too. That ended, like, in the early 1980s, at least in Massachusetts. Yeah. And I know that there was... And then for a while, uh, they were only open till noon. Remember that? Right. Or they opened at noon, yeah, noon, noon to, to six. Noon to Maybe five, that's yeah. Yeah. Yep, I remember uh, that. They, yeah, it only has yeah, slight hours on Sundays. Now, you know, it's the wild, wild west. But that is why a Sunday is misspelled so that it wouldn't go against the blue laws. Which is real weird and superstitious, but it was also 1892, so, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. As is often the case when we encounter one of these type of stories, Bill, I am forced to ask, like, of the types of ice cream sundaes that you may have experienced in your lifetime, do you have a favorite? And if so, what kind? All right. So, I eat like a pregnant woman sometimes because (laughs) I I like regular hot fudge, like a hot fudge sundae. But I'll put it on strawberry ice cream, which has gotten me really weird looks from my friends and the girl behind the counter making the sundae. I think to get the pregnancy special, you have to ask for a side of dill pickle spears. Yeah, that's the go-to. Although in the past, we'll say five years, my palate has really shifted towards peanut butter. Mm-hmm. So I'll get like a, a peanut butter cup kind of sundae. Ah, I like those two. My and yourself? My favorite. Now, for those of you who are outside of New England, there was until very recently a chain of New England ice cream and other food restaurants called Friendly's. And they made the Jim Dandy. The Jim Dandy was two bananas split, 
with four scoops of ice cream, caramel, hot chocolate, hot marshmallow, hot uh, strawberry syrup, whipped cream, nuts, a cherry, and jimmies. Yeah, it was the it was uh, it was the ice cream equivalent of garbage fries. Yeah, it was like seventy thousand calories, and sometimes you had to eat it with friends. But my God, were those things delicious! It was like the Ziggy Piggy from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, right? Yes, or the Banana Kaboom from The Simpsons. It was delicious, and that that's my favorite. That's my platonic ideal of ice cream sundays is the Jim Dandy. All right. Moving on to, oh, by the way, for everybody else outside of New England, Jimmy's are sprinkles. Yes. Yeah, Jimmy's is a very regional uh, name. I found that out when I went to the Midwest. They were like, All right, you can't have Jimmy's ice cream. He's eating it. They're like, no, I just want Jimmy's on my ice cream. No, you can't have Jimmy's ice cream. Oh, no. My friend Suzanne found out the hard way when she went to New York City that Jimmy's means something completely different over there. Oh. Jimmy's mean condoms. And she was asking for Jimmy's on her ice cream. They just gave her the weirdest look. Uh, yeah, are you pregnant? Because uh, if you eat this, you're not going to be able to. So, so, they thought she was pregnant because, one, she wanted Jimmy's, and, two, she got a hot fudge sundae with strawberry ice cream. <laughs> All right. So moving on to April the 6th, 1923, Firestone Tire and Rubber Company starts producing inflatable tires. That's one of those things that because it was invented before we were born, you would just think that it's always been like that. Right. Like just imagine riding around in your car with these like hard-ass solid rubber tires. Yeah, that would. Because uh, that's how they were. Well, you can kind of get them now. You can get the sensation now if you buy run flats, which are kind of like solid tires. They do have some air in them, but you can run them for a long time when they're technically flat. I can't imagine on little skinny-ass rims that were on the cars in the 1920s with just a, a yeah. piece of thick rubber around them. It must have been spine-smashingly painful to drive around on like cobblestones or non-paved roads and stuff. Gee. My God, dentists must have made so much money because it would just like rattle all of the fillings out of your teeth. Oh, yeah. I remember that, you know, that was the year that the Chevrolet Corporation, at least the Chevrolet chiropractor. <laughs> so as you uh, know, I am a unicyclist. Yes. And I was at a flea market a couple of years ago, and I found an antique unicycle, and I bought it. It was only It $10. only had one wheel on it. That's what made it antique, right? Yeah, I got it, I got it real cheap because it only had the one wheel. <laughs> but that one wheel had one of those really hard-ass pieces of, like, solid rubber tires. Right. Uh, it was a little warped. Uh, there was no way I could ride it. It was more for, like, a showpiece or right, whatever. Right. But I tried, and, oh, God, that must have been horrible to be to be even try riding that thing what's wrong with binko the clown oh he's back again he's when he went off the curb he's gonna die that's what's that's <laughs> that's why clowns wear those pointy hats because their spine is sticking out of the top of their head from riding those <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> and hard-ass the unicycles yeah, yeah baggy pants are full of foam rubber yeah. all right moving on to the seventh april 7th 1927 the first long distance picture transmitted by wireless television is an image of, at the time, the Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, soon to become president, from Washington, D.C. to New York City. Uh, it was transmitted by the AT&T Company, or American Telephone and Telegraph. After the its almost instantaneous transmission, the, the picture resolved on the picture tube in the, uh, the New York City lab at AT&T. And it was a proof that, with the right amount of power, that both still and moving images could be transmitted like radio in the frequency spectrum that they were assigned by the government, which is neat. It was the effectively the very birth of television. So he wasn't president yet? Nope. Not in 27. Oh, so 
Oh, so I was about to say, if he, I mean, if he was the first president to be transmitted via television, uh, actually, he's the first person to be transmitted long distance via television. He was also the uh, first soon-to-be president, probably a victim of horrible conspiracy theories. <laughs> More than likely. I don't think he sat for the imagery. I think they literally transmitted a photograph of the Secretary of Commerce on camera. That's what they want you to think, Jeff. He would go on to be president during the Great Depression and is more well-known for sure for that than he is for being the first politician transmitted, or first image, actually, transmitted over television. Although, for some reason, I think that the first prototype image was Felix the Cat. This must be the first commercial transmission, or, or it's the first long-distance transmission, so it's not from one room to the first other. Non, yeah, first non-cat to be <laughs> not, uh, transmitted. Right, the non-Felix. Non so, April 8th, 1988, your friend and mine, televangelist Jimmy Swaggett, is defrocked by the Assembles <laughs> of God Church. Uh, yes, I remember yep. that story. I have sinned. Well, that was the thing is he had gone on TV sometime earlier, just a crying, horrible, blubbering mess saying, I have sinned against you. And everyone was like, yeah, yeah. W what'd you do? And he's like, ah, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that. Yeah, so it turns out he was exposed for having sexual uh, affairs mm -hmm. uh, with a hooker, no, no less. Yes. But what had happened was, is Swagger accused this other preacher, Marvin Gorman, of having sexual affairs. Right. And then uh, Gorman was defrocked for the scandal. So uh, he hired his son-in-law to stake out Swagger and then caught him dead to rights. So... Yeah, everybody was getting some around that time, man. Ma'am, if you were a priest on TV in 1988, you were getting some. I think that the media being really focused on them made it a much bigger story, too. So this stuff ended up, it sold a lot of tabloids. It definitely made weird UHF TV and cable access TV and, like, religious cable channels draw in right. viewers to see these guys, you know, when they were doing this stuff. It also, this particular event inspired my favorite Frank Zappa live song, which is Texas Motel, a four-song Beatle medley with <laughs> with this as the anchoring point in the story with the lyrics changed to reflect the current climate and time. It's a really funny song that you should dig out on YouTube. <laughs> it, this, it turned into like a wicked pissing contest between him and Gorman, too, because uh, Gorman actually offered to remain silent about Swagger. Right if Swaggett would publicly apologize and say that he lied about Gorman's affairs. Right. And then Swaggett said he would not do that, so Gorman was like, all right. Well, I guess I'm... you then. And, I, yeah. I, I guess I'm going to the National Enquirer. And yeah, yeah, that's yeah. where he went, yep. And right around that same time is when all the uh, Jim Baker stuff was hitting the fan, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. 1986, good time to be a TV preacher. 1988... Not as much. Yeah. <laughs> not not so much. All right, let's wrap up the week. April 9th, 1965, the Houston Astrodome opens. It doesn't sound like a big deal because it's long gone now. They've imploded it in like in the in the early 1990s. But the Houston Astrodome uh -huh. was the first domed stadium with a openable roof that would let in the sun. Right. I think there was other dome stadiums prior to that, but they were much much smaller. I think the Houston Astrodome was like the first like major one. Yeah, it was huge. And it was the home of the Houston Astros. Not a big surprise there. 
Right. And is probably, well, for non-sports folks, it's probably best known as the stadium that the Bad News Bears played in in the second film in the original series of the Bad News Bears, the Bad News Bears in Breaking Training. Oh, that's right. I saw that in the theater with my mom. Did you really? She thought it was really... Yeah, she thought it was super funny every time the kids were swearing. Yeah. She, she always, every time the kids swore, she thought that was really, really funny. That does seem to be the draw. Yeah, the, like the point of the movie was the Bad News Bears like won some sort of like tournament or whatever, and they got to play at the Major League Baseball Stadium at the Astrodome. Yes. And they kind of like went into extra innings or whatever, and the they wanted to cut the game short. Like the big brass wanted to cut the game short because... You know, the real baseball game had to happen. And then everybody in the audience was chanting, like, let them play, let them play. Right. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. Yeah. I remember that. And it's the one that Walter Matthau basically said, I'm not making any sequels to this. So you find somebody else. Your actor was in that, that guy you liked there from Used Cars. Yes. He was Butter, butter Crunch. No, he wasn't. It wasn't Buttermaker. He was, they said he, he had disappeared. He had gone off and remarried oh. or something. And they brought in another guy. They brought in William Devine. And Jodie Foster, right? She was the pitcher. So this William Devane guy. Yes. He was in Breaking Train. Why am I remembering the guy from Used Cars? Jack, whatever. Jack Warden. Because Jack Warden was Buttermaker on the TV show, the sitcom of the Bad News Bears. Jumping Jesus on a pogo. I forgot there was a TV show. Which I think only had two cast members in it, Loomis and Tanner. Or Tanner was played by a different kid, and Loomis was the only one that made it from the, the transition from the movies into the TV show. Wow. My God. It only I lasted thought there was a TV yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah, like right up there with the Plan of the Apes TV show. Yeah. They must have ran like on Thursday nights or something. <laughs> yep. One, one leads into the other, and no one watches. All right. So moving on to the celebrity birthdays. April the 3rd, 1961, American legendary comic, uh, for better or for worse, Eddie Murphy. One of the guys, the first real comics to make the transition to superstar actor from stand-up and sketch comedy. Yeah, from Saturday Night Live to... Yeah. Right. He was on Saturday Night Live. He was... I mean, everybody loved him on Saturday Night Live. with some iconic characters. Mm -hmm. And then he was in 48 Hours with Nick Nolte, which, you know, made him a big star. A huge star. And Beverly Hills Cop was another huge yeah, film. And then he was in another 48 hours with uh, Nick Dolte, and that almost destroyed his career. <laughs> but, yeah, but he, he bounced right back with Beverly Hills Cop, yep. which just, yeah, propelled him into the stratosphere. Into the stratosphere. And he stayed there for a long time. He made a lot of good films. Career sort of stagnated a little bit. He still made sort of situational comedy films, but the market, I think, had changed. Well, the market had changed, too, and he also, you know, he became a family man. He has right. a, a family. You know, he's got daughters, so he started making movies that his family could go watch and enjoy. You know, hey, you know, daddy's in a movie, but you can't go see it because you're only six, you know. My two favorites of his are Bowfinger with Steve Martin, where he plays... Bowfinger is really underrated. It is that underrated. Movie is very funny. He plays, two yeah. ca- he plays a character who's like himself, and he plays his brother who looks just like him, but is super-duper nerdy. And the other one is The Distinguished Gentleman, where he plays a character who has the same name as a representative from Florida who <laughs> dies of old age, and he just buys all of his campaign stuff and runs for his seat and wins it. <laughs> and it's a really good film. Eddie Murphy, probably best known for Vampire in Brooklyn. 
He has a movie that's out right now, which is kind of like a, a remake of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yes. Uh, I think it's called You People. Mm-hmm. I have not seen it yet. I have not seen it yet either. All right, moving on to the fourth. April 4th, 1932, American actor Anthony Perkins, who... Probably best known for anything but Psycho. On this show, we would say probably best known for his role in Psycho 3. The return... <laughs> in Psycho. But he was also in a ton of films before Psycho. And a ton yes. of stuff kind of after Psycho, too. The first time I saw him in a film, I saw him in a film called Friendly Persuasion, where he played the oldest son of uh, a family of Quakers at the outbreak of the Civil War. It's a great movie. He was fantastic yeah. as as Josh Birdwell. Uh, Tony Perkins was always like a, like a handsome leading man prior to Psycho. Right. And then after Psycho, like his career really got derailed for a bit. Yeah. Because he did such a good job of the role of Norman Bates that nobody wanted to hire him in, you know, those leading roles ever again. Right. And also the audience didn't want to see him as a leading man because they, they did such a great job of playing Norman Bates. I think by the time he got to the 70s, too, he, he definitely transitioned into weird-looking as opposed to Anthony Perkins. If you look at Anthony Perkins in, like, the early 1960s, he's very, very handsome and lithe, and mm-hmm. and he really looks like a leading man. He could play anything from, like, a weird beatnik to uh, any character, actor, character-type part. Yeah. And once you get into the 70s and early 80s, like, he doesn't have that, that kind of charisma anymore. He was He's still a great yeah. actor. I loved him in The Black yes. Hole, and I loved him in Crimes of Passion. He played the villain in that, and I don't know, just... Oh, wow. You know, he was still very good in it. Yep. And it was always compelling to watch, especially when he went back and he took over the director's reins for the Psycho franchise, which we've talked about on the show before. Yes, all of those sequels are fantastic. I, I love the Psycho franchise. Agreed. All right, moving on to April the 5th, 1933... American actor Frank Gorsham Jr., probably best known for anything but playing the Riddler on the TV series Batman from the 60s. I best know him from the episode of Star Trek where one half of his face was black and one half of his face was white and he was chasing a guy whose faces was also one half black and one half white, but they were (laughs) alternating. But it was like the other half. No, it was the other half, yeah. And it confused the cast of Star Trek why they wanted to kill each other. I watched him do stand-up comedy. Did you really? I remember seeing a video when I was like a little kid. It was like on like when we first got HBO. Yep. And it was only like a best of kind of a thing. So it was a very quick clip. But he was doing an impersonation of Jack Nicholson of all people. Oh. Yeah. Was it it must have been good, so, right? Or it wouldn't have been something that was broadcast. Right, yeah. Yo, he was good. He was fine. Well, that's um, funny. Like I said, we, we know him best as the Riddler and set a standard for what the Riddler is like. Well, first of all, that was he, that was the first villain on the TV series. Was it? Did you? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize and, that. Yeah, the first episode. Yeah, the first episode was with the Riddler. And two, in the comic books prior to the TV series, the Riddler was like a, a, a nothing character. Right. Like, a, a, not someone they use very often. Right. Kind of like the Shocker if you read the Spider-Man comics. Right. Frank Gresham really brought him to life and set a standard for how the Riddler acts. The Shocker's yeah. like the dollar store Electro for those of you who are following yeah, along. Pretty much, yeah. All right, moving on to the 6th. April 6th, 1928, a scientist named Dewey Watson is born. Now, as we do sometimes yeah. on the show, we don't... 
Who was that, Jeff? Okay, we do not bring on uh, always celebrities, but Dewey Watson is a celebrity in his own right. His work with a guy named Francis Crick, they are the two guys who uncovered and determined that DNA works as, as a double helix. So they are effectively, uh, Watson and Crick are the fathers of, of modern DNA, the understanding of how modern DNA works. Okay, so those two guys are the reason why everybody watches Forensic Files, essentially. Yes, pretty much. Every time you see that hologram on the, the table where the, all the characters are like, well, you can tell here that he was stabbed by a tail of a stingray in this hologram. That's that's Watson and Crick's work. But Dewey Watson is the, is the one that usually gets the first billing. I don't know why, but he and Crick are the guys that did it. I just remember whenever I had jury duty... Them, you know, giving us the, the instructions. And the uh, the bailiff guy was like, first and foremost, those of you who watch television shows, forget everything you know. There's probably not going to be any DNA evidence in any of the cases that you see. <laughs> That's funny. Sorry to disappoint Sorry you. Sorry to disappoint you. Well, now that there are tools like CRISPR, which is a DNA editing tool that uses a, a, a fragment of bacteria and or virus to go in and be able to make little changes, subtle changes to the DNA strands to add to either turn on or turn off genes or remove them completely. They've used it to do uh. some stuff like cure congenital liver disease or a genetic liver disease that it, that eventually kills the people that have it. Now you can get a single infusion and it goes away and it never comes back. And hopefully they'll, they'll find something that fixes... I remember the more conspiratorial members of our society losing their ever-loving minds at the thought of the CRISPR thing. Yes. For me, I'm more like the people who watched Rampage, which the CRISPR is the whole reason that all the animals get giant and smash up the city in that movie. It's, Chris, oh, it's CRISPR. is it? Yeah. I just remember the video game. No, they the, didn't mention the, anything about CRISPR. The movie was very funny. No, it's not in the video game at all, but it's in the movie. But anyway, to drag us all the way back around to Dewey Watson, we wouldn't even be able to have this conversation without him being born in 1928. Thanks, Dew. All right. Uh, speaking of disappointments, April the 7th, 1948, I think I and, and, and America shed a collective tear the day that birthday boy John Oates shaved off his majestic mustache. John Oates <laughs> being the guitar player and the sometimes vocalist, but usually not, uh, member of Daryl Hall and John Oates. He is the John Oates of John Oates. Ah, I remember him as the Oates of Hall and Oates before they added their first names because people thought Hall and Oates was like one person <laughs> or the name of a band that was didn't make any sense. I don't remember hearing him ever do anything else, but I know he still tours with... Uh, Daryl Hall. They don't write songs together anymore. What's up? What else is he going to do? <laughs> right, right. Yes. yes. Uh, yeah, Daryl Hall sang most of the songs that I can think of. And I like Hall & Oates. I've owned albums by them in the past. And I'll go back and I'll listen to them on Spotify. Mm -hmm. The only song that really comes to mind that John Oates sang was their cover of You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Which is really good if you've ever heard it. I haven't. I've never. I've never heard him sing anything that I can think of because I think of Hall and Oates as Daryl Hall's band, and he's the guy in the back who's like holding a guitar. I don't even know if it's a bass yeah. guitar or a regular guitar. So <laughs> he's the guy in the band that's not from the Saturday Night Live band, right? right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, he's not G.E. Smith. He doesn't look like G.E. Smith. But yeah, I don't know. I've I've never heard him sing, but I'll have to go dig that up. That's a good song. I like that tune. Yeah, they do a, a fantastic job with it. All right, moving on to the 8th. April 8th, 1918. 
former first lady and recovering alcoholic Betty Ford, wife of... Oh. Uh, not Henry Ford, wife of President Gerald Ford, who is... Yeah, who you may know from the Betty Ford Center. You may know from the Betty Ford Center, who's probably best known for taking her struggles with alcohol and turning it into a way to help people overcome their struggles with alcohol and drug abuse and sort of built the model for that sort of substance misuse disorder uh, attention and mm-hmm. long-term care. So she's way more important than you might think she is just as the first lady to President Ford. She mm-hmm. eclipsed him in, I think, importance and impact on society and facilities that still bear her name still treat thousands upon thousands of people every year. Yeah, and another thing, too, about her is not long after she became first lady, she had breast cancer and she underwent a mastectomy. And she was very, like, open and forward about it. Like, she didn't hide it. She, as a matter of fact, she made sure everybody knew about it. Right. You know, as a way to open up, you know, and to just show America and show American women, like, this happens and... I know that, you know, having a mastectomy can, you know, you're losing a part of yourself. You're losing, for some women, a part of your identity. So, yeah, uh, Betty Ford, like we said, you know, it took her addiction and really paid it forward. She has done a lot of good in the world and her namesake will live on, hopefully forever, doing also, you know, great things for the world too. Yes. All right, and then wrapping up the birthdays, man born April 9th, 1830, a man by the name of, it's Edward, but it's like Edward, mm-hmm. Edward James Mybridge. Yes. Probably best known. <laughs> All right, so he was basically the guy that pioneered motion photography. By mistake. Uh, yeah. Uh, so him and this guy, August Roden, they had this like, kind of like a, a, a bet going mm-hmm. that horses, whenever they gallop, all four legs come off the ground. You know, yes. uh, Edward uh, Mybridge over here said yes. Rodan said no. And they were like, well, how are we going to solve this? There's no way to tell because horses move so fast. So Mybridge over here set up a series of cameras. I think it was 16. Uh, yes. With trip wires that... As the horse galloped by, they would tr- they would set off the wire, you know, hit the wires, and it would shut off the shutters for the camera. And it took sixteen still photographs. Uh, it was almost like a silhouette yes. of this horse running by. And then they put the pictures in order and put them like in a flip book. And then yeah, that was the first motion picture essentially. It was after they had de- after he had developed them and were looking through them. Initially, they looked through to find the picture of the horse with all four feet off the ground, which they found. And then it was flipping yep. through. They realized that they had the illusion of movement. For, so for our audience who doesn't know who August Rodin is, you know that uh-huh. sculpture of the thinker? The guy that looks like he's oh, sitting on the him? toilet? That's Rodin. Yeah. yeah. That's August Rodin. He's a sculptor. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, famous sculptor. Probably best known. <laughs> Probably best known as not the giant bird monster from the Japanese movie, but the guy who invented yeah. the thinker. Yeah. The guy who, who sculpted the oh, thinker. That's interesting that they had put the pictures like in order and they were flipping through and they're like, holy, this looks like a moving picture. Right. It's moving. Oh, wow. That's yep. amazing. All right. So we're going to move on now, Jeff. We're moving on okay. from galloping horses yes. to sacred cows. Oh, yeah. It is time for... The Worst Song Ever. 
Before we get involved with our worst song ever this week, I would like to note, because I, like I just said, Sacred Cows, we are not talking about the worst song ever. That is simply the name of the segment. The name of the segment is the worst song ever. The songs that we bring up are not necessarily the worst songs. That being said, the other day, my friends and I make up playlists for each other, yeah. and this song was included in the playlist. This song is by Weezer. This is called Island in the Sun. like this song okay yeah um whenever this song came up i was like oh this freaking song who the hell is this and i look and i was like wait that's weezer huh no kidding i've never had a problem with weezer okay. i don't get i don't get them i don't listen to them right that i don't get them but they also don't irritate me yeah but apparently they do because i didn't know that this song was weezer <laughs> well, I knew that this one was Weezer because mm-hmm. of all the Weezer songs that get played on the radio, it's this one, and it's just like Buddy Holly from two different eras in Weezer's catalog. I am yes. also not a, a big fan of Weezer, and I think it's because at the time that they became famous, I was already starting to listen to different music. Okay. In going back and listening to, I listened to all of the singles for their first three records in advance of today's program. And yep. one of the consistent f- features that I, f- I listen to this on, you t- I watch YouTube videos of them. One yep. of the consistent features of the YouTube experience with this band is the majority of comments about the song are, oh my God, this was my favorite song when I was in middle school. Oh my God, I love this song when I was in eighth grade. Oh, we still listen to this song when I was in middle school. And it just keeps coming up over and over again. And I think that in like yep. that 19, well, this was late 90s for this particular song. But they, yep. their career started in around 94, 94, 96, is that it seemed to hit people just at the right age, 13, 14 years old. It really has that sort of resonant quality, I think, with that age group. And I am not that age group anymore. Sure. I don't think I ever was in that age group. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that you weren't. And I remember you when you were 14 years old and you were, it would have been like, these guys are, this isn't just too safe. This music is way too safe for me. Yeah, I don't dislike Weezer, but they don't really register on my retina, right. so to speak. They're they're pretty non-offensive, and when I say non-offensive, I mean they're pretty palatable. They're mm-hmm. pretty you know safe radio stuff. Yep. Now apparently, now the first album came out. I remember when it came out because the video for Buddy Holly. Yeah, it was played uh, nine thousand million times on MTV. Yeah, it. Yeah, it features like clips of the band intertwined pretty seamlessly with clips from the TV show Happy Days. Yes. And it was, you know, at the time it was a pretty groundbreaking video. I think without the video element, I don't think that song would have done as well. You know, we still lived at the time of things having a very visual element that was just as important as the song itself. Someone who hears this song on the radio probably every day it's a lot less memorable 
And what I think of when I hear this song is like, I remember the video for this song. So I'm proving your point is yeah. without without if without the visual component, I don't think people have the same the same interaction with it as like I do because of the when the video was on forty thousand times a day. So uh, like I do, I spend uh, you know some time listening to the, the the band in question, you know, looking up and reading and uh, learning about the band themselves. Now the main singer songwriter dude uh, from Weezer is a guy named Rivers Como. Mm-hmm. And this is a weird thing to say. I don't think, I don't think I would be friends with this guy if he was somebody that like hung around. He comes across as disingenuous. Okay, that's just the way. Like everything that I'm watching about him, like prior to Weezer, he was in a couple of metal bands. He's like right. really into metal. He was in a band called Avant God, and he had like the mullet and all that. Right. At one point, he was in an Ingve Malmsteen tribute band. You know, this guy's all about the metal. But then the comet happened in 1991 there, the, the comet of Nirvana. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly he's not playing metal anymore. Right. You he know? definitely falls into the loud, quiet, loud style that Nirvana didn't invent by any stretch of the imagination, but made really popular. Yeah. Uh, they would also say that if you look at Rivers Como's kind of like look, you know, where he's kind of got like the the nerdy hair and the black rim glasses and all that, he even admits that he picked up that look from Nirvana's video in Bloom. Right. I don't know, man. Like, I used to see these guys in the early 90s, you know, hanging around the shows and stuff like that where... I don't know. I guess there's a, a name for him, but basically I'm acting sensitive so I can get laid kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. That's how this Rivers Como guy comes across to me. There's a quality in their music, both in their first record, Weezer, and their third record, which is where this single comes from. Yep. The Green Album. I don't know if it has a name other than that, to be honest with you. It's kind of like Peter Gabriel, where yeah. all of his albums are named Peter Gabriel. Right. So... Well, there's Weezer and then there's the Green Albums. That's how we'll differentiate yeah. the two. Is that yeah. those those records have a particular sound that is super duper clean. And I don't mean clean yes. like radio friendly lyrics. What I mean is, is clean, clean production. It reminds yeah. me of another band that I really, really loved. Came out in the early 2000s, OK Go, whose first few records were super duper clean. Yeah, crisp, crisp and clean. You could hear every single note. It was meticulously made. They're another band who was very much helped out by the visual element. Oh yeah, yeah, very much. They, they, no one listens to them on Spotify, but everybody watches them on YouTube. Um, yes. Anyway, and then they had four singles on their first record. They got some good airplay on them. They had the video of the year for for Buddy Holly, and then they got a ton of money dropped on them to make another record. They decided not to work with Rick Ocasek again. They made their own record called Pinkerton, which is a little grungier and more... It's very dark. Very dark. It's more roughly produced, I guess, is the right phrase. It's it's an okay indie record, I guess. I I haven't listened to it very much. But it's very different than their first record. So lyrically, it's different. Production-wise, it's different. Songs are a lot longer. Ultimately, it didn't draw the audience from the first record into the second record. And critically, it it was panned when it came out. So this long period of time goes by before they release another record. And they all go and do session work, and they do other stuff with other bands and things. Yeah, he went to Harvard for a little while. I think in between the first and second album, he was going to Harvard. Like, he lived in the dorms. 
which is right. kind of weird, but okay. Hey, yeah, dorms are expensive. You probably needed to have a hit record just to be able to do that. Right? <laughs> yeah, I can't get student loans because I'm self-employed. <laughs> As a member of Weezer. So knowing that the fans will probably listen to a record that sounds like the first record and not like the second record, they make Green, which sounds like the first record. It just isn't as... The times have changed between the first record and this time. There's like 10 years that's gone by. Just about. Or maybe it's a little less than that. Maybe it's like seven years. Yeah. I think another big issue that happened, and if you talk... I watched a Saturday Night Live sketch, which was really funny, but there is like a cutoff point with Weezer fans that like the ones that call themselves the true fans, whenever somebody's a true fan of something, they tend to like very little. So the true fans only like the first two albums. Right. And there is a definite paradigm shift after that second album. One, they got a different bass player. Right. And two, Rivers was writing less angry songs and less depressing songs. Right. You know, he... He had some weird family relationships. His birth father and his mother were kind of almost like hippies, like super into like meditation and mm-hmm. stuff like that. The father later like became like a one of those, and I said, oh, that Jesus said, oh, kind right. of preachers. He's, he's like one of those Bible bangers right, right. Uh, type of preachers. And, you know, that can, you know, wear on family members, I guess, sometimes. Oh, yeah. So, like I said, the the lyrics, lyrically, you get a song like the one you really like there, Undone, the sweater song. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, and I can say this about the band Marillion, is a lot of people like will hear songs like that and just attach themselves to the lyrics because it kind of describes what they're going through mm-hmm. at that time. So you jump off of that and into this hip, hip, you know, Islands of the Sun and something, you know, a, a beach song, basically. It's like, yeah, that's not what I'm listening to you for, Rivers. Yeah, I... You I, know, I can see the jump-off point for the fans that liked, you know, the first two albums. There's an element uh, on the Green record and, and in this song, which is, this is clearly written for, like, pop, non-offensive, non-alternative radio. This is a pop radio song. I found myself yeah. listening to this song a couple of times in a row today before i went off and explored more of their catalog and all i could think of by the second way through is this song would benefit with a really long sort of freight trainish guitar solo because there's (laughs) there's so little going on in it it is it's repetitive but it's repetitive in a way that is very very boring and uh-huh. I kept waiting for it to change. There's one little segment where he plays a lead guitar lick in between the chorus and bridge two minutes into the song, and then it never happens again. The rest of it, it just keeps repeating the same two first chorus and bridge and verse. And then it ends. That's the end of it. It's done unironically. The video is unironic. It's them just playing at a wedding. I saw a, a you know, an article that was written about Weezer, you know, whenever they first came out. And right. this record reviewer referred to them as the Stone Temple Pixies, <laughs> which I think is a really good uh, description of them. Right. Let me state again for all the Weezer fans that are writing their hate mail right now, I don't dislike Weezer. Right. They just don't land on my radar. Uh, but I, I think that's a fairly good assessment of Stone Temple Pixies because the Stone Temple Pilots were kind of like a corporate put together version of a grunge band. Right. And Weezer 
is a very radio safe version of an indie band. I agree. Yeah. Absolutely agree. I know that I described them when we talked about doing this band today as if beige had a sound, it would sound like (laughs) this song. Hip, hip. As far as Weezer goes, I guess Rivers Como was an interesting dude. I don't, it's it's not for me. I'm I'm being as diplomatic as I can. Mm -hmm. It's not for me, but... This song's terrible. <laughs> well, I don't, again, I don't generally like, you know, rip the radio out of the dashboard and hurl it out of the car when they come on, but I don't go out of my way to listen to them either. And if I did, I would go back, I've gone back today actually and listened to the sweater song, which is, it dawns on me after listening to it a couple of times is pretty much is Creep by, by Radiohead, <laughs> which. Oh, you know what else it is? It's Welcome Home by Metallica. Oh, well, see, you know. They. He even said that. Rivers Como goes, yeah, I went back and listened to it. I was like, oh, my God, I accidentally rewrote <laughs> I accidentally rewrote Welcome Home by Metallica. So I guess, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, even if it's unintended. Anyway, that I like that song, but this one is considerably less so. It sounds like something that should be selling me a, a cell phone plan. It's all, uh, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm almost positive that they did use this song in a commercial. Right. All right. I uh, know. I don't think it was a commercial for Taco Bell, though. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> All right. Here we are. The answer to our very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Oh. Taco Bell. Why is there a bell? Why is Taco Bell a Taco well, Bell? I'm glad you asked, Bill, because the answer to this question is super simple. If you're a telephone nerd like me. Back in 1983, okay. when the consent decree was forced to break up AT&T, it broke up AT&T into the regional bell operating companies, or the RBOX. There was Pacific Bell. There was New York, New England Exchange. There was uh, Western Bell. There was Texas Bell. There was Taco Bell. And there was Midwest Bell. And you are a freaking <laughs> ding-a-ling, okay? What, am I wrong? You're way off. Oh, uh, the answer couldn't be any simpler. In 1962, in Downey, California, a man by the name of Glenn Bell opened up his first taco restaurant. So, yeah, it's named after the founder, Glenn Bell. I like my answer better. Just put that out there for the audience. I I bet our audience could correct you on Monday morning. All right, but that's going to wrap it up for this week. Just like a burrito, we'll see you (laughs) back. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Yo quiero, everybody. Good night, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Bye, guys. A special shout-out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, where this week was way better last year. You can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Twibbly. That's T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Remember, Robert Hayes from Airplane listens to Twibbly, and I heard he got George Zip to subscribe after Macho Grande.